everybody. Welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. This is episode 68. And this time, I'm going to go back to the idea of identifying the working properties of wood by looking at the technical properties. We've done whole episodes on this, but I'm often encouraging people to send me specific examples. So again, the idea is not to identify what species is this. We know what the species is, but to identify how is it going to work? And specifically, how will it work in comparison to some species that you have some firsthand knowledge with? So this week, we're gonna be looking at a species that I'll be honest, I know very little about. Uh, it's known as Chinese mahogany or sometimes Chinese cedar. It's a tuna sinensis, which right off the bat, because it's in the tuna genus, I think of it as cedar, because the first thing I think of with tuna is tuna ciliata, which is Australian cedar, which interestingly enough, that genus is a hardwood. It is not a softwood, and people immediately think of cedar as a softwood, rightfully so this is going to be a hardwood. So it'd be particularly interesting because I have no firsthand knowledge of this. Uh, I had to do a little bit of research to figure it out. So we'll be comparing uh, Chinese mahogany to some other species that um, uh, some of you may have some more experience with. We're gonna talk a little bit about ash and pecan from the same perspective as well. This all comes from an email from Justin. So that's the kind of the gist of today's episode. I do want to cover a little bit of business. Um, again, <clears throat> thank you to those who have chosen to sponsor the show, those who have become patrons. I get some great questions from you guys. You really help to shape the direction the show takes. So thank you not only for sponsoring the show, but for helping me with what we're going to talk about. You know, I could ramble all day long about really geeky wood things, and a lot of you might like that, but I really like to talk about the things that are, you know, on your mind, things that you're wondering about, things that relate to your own shops, your own experience working with wood or buying wood. So again, uh, those of you that sponsor the show uh, and send in questions, you're almost guaranteed it's going to become the topic of a show. So again, thank you to everybody who does that. If you are interested in becoming a sponsor of the show, go to patreon.com slash lumber update. And you know, while we're on this topic, because I often forget to say this, if you have a specific question for the show, certainly if you're a patron, you can ask via Patreon or just go to lumberupdate.com. There is a contact form there that you can fill out and ask questions, or you can just email me at lumberupdate at gmail.com. Keep the questions coming, folks. I, I love uh, kind of one of my favorite things about this show is digging into the inbox and, and pulling different questions and kind of coming up with a theme for the show. So again, thanks to everybody who continues to support the show, and thanks to everybody who keeps asking questions. So speaking of folks who have sent things in, I got a, an interesting article from Andrew um, about uh, lumber buying. And uh, this is in the Atlantic. And uh, the title is Why Climate Change is Pushing Lumber Prices. And that bit of a clickbait type title. But what's particularly interesting is this is an interview with the Atlantic and a lumber buyer. And you get a really keen insight into that commodities type market and how a buyer responds to it. A lot of interesting stuff to learn there. I will link to that in the show notes. I highly encourage you to check that out. And then Jason sent me this article on white oak for the whiskey industry. I've talked, whether it's on this show or on Wood Talk, about um, oak shortages because of the micro distilleries that have just exploded uh, all across the, the US, but all across the globe, frankly, and a huge demand for white oak barrels. 
This is a, an article that talks about how a lot of these distilleries are taking an active role in the further growth of white oak. So on the heels of our recent silviculture episode, there are silviculturalists who now are on the payroll with companies like Jack Daniels and, and many, many other, pardon me, I'm not a whiskey drinker. That's the only brand I can think of. Old Smoky, Old Smoky, they make whiskey. Um, but you get the idea. A lot of these companies now have silviculturists on staff. And in many instances, there are some of these um, distilleries that actually now own land and are planting white oak and growing their own white oak. Or in some other instances, they've reached out to the landowners or they reached out to the uh, concession owners and they are putting together silvicultural plans in order to facilitate the growth of white oak. So if you remember in the silvicultural episode, I talked a lot about how certain uh, selection methods can promote uh, shade loving trees or shade uh, hating trees. And you can really get granular on this and you can actually promote the growth of specific species through particular selection. So in this case, they actually have looked into some of the best white oak that makes the best barrels, that makes the best whiskey, and done a little bit of genetic engineering and have kind of reverse engineered from the best barrel, the best whiskey made in this barrel, back to the tree and the proper growing conditions, the proper silvicultural system to facilitate the growth of that particular white oak. It's really interesting when you have a very, very specific purpose for the, the trees in that particular concession and how the science of silviculture can help you to grow really prosperous trees and help to further uh, a particular industry. It's, it's particularly interesting. I mean, this is nothing new. I mean, the paper industry has been doing this for years. Um, pulp plantations are all about that. When you know exactly what you need to make a quality product, you can... Um, grow the appropriate, call them what they will, crops to do that. Very interesting. I, I quite enjoy that article. Thank you, Jason, for, for sending that in. I also had um, some feedback on that um, silvicultural episode. And uh, this is from Ben. He says, as a wildlife biologist, botany nerd, and hobbyist hand tool woodworker, I greatly enjoyed your silvicultural systems episode. Uh, ben, we, we, have, we have hit the Venn diagram. You, you need to continue to listen to this show because we align in everything there. Um, he goes on to say, you did a great job describing the different forms of timber harvest and their pros and cons. I like hearing how seemingly disparate professions and hobbies overlap and come together to solve common issues. I live in middle Tennessee and visit a lot of properties. It was always easy to spot a property that was logged after the mid-1900s due to the dense stands of invasive non-native plants. Specifically, and he lists a whole bunch of, of, of Latin terms here. I had to look all these up because I was not familiar with these. Some of them are shrubs that he's talking about. But needless to say, a lot of non-native plants have grown up out through to, due to the logging. He goes on to say, one indirect ecological effect of opening up forest canopies with no ongoing maintenance is that these invasive species can quickly take over large areas with the increase in sunlight. Birds that favor early successional habitat and heavily forage the seeds of these species, these invasive species, quickly fill the seedbed with unwanted species. These species, for many reasons, quickly outcompete our native herbaceous and woody species as the shift in composition would hinder the regrowth of desired composition and do ecological harm, do you have any examples of post-harvest maintenance plans used by timber harvesters and concessions? So this relates to actually directly to what I'm talking about with the whiskey industry. 
Absolutely, there are examples of this. In fact, every proper silvicultural and harvest plan has a post-harvest maintenance because the idea is once you cut down um, trees, once you harvest, however you're doing that, let's just go with a, a, a more, forgive the pun, clear-cut example where we actually um, embrace clear-cutting because then you're cutting everything down in that one area. The plan after that highly depends upon what's next for that particular plot of land. So just like an alfalfa farmer or a corn farmer has an understanding of what's going to be planted next, once they've harvested the corn or the alfalfa, either they're replanting the same species or they're doing crop rotation, regardless, they know what's going there next. And they know what needs to happen in order to prepare the soil for whatever that particular species is. Now, if you know a farmer that knows what he's doing is not going to have dramatically different soil chemistry needs from one rotation to the next, you know, and I know nothing about this, so please don't say I'm wrong because I guarantee I am. So say, let's use the two plants we just talked about. Say you have corn in the, in the field, you've harvested it, and you're going to plant alfalfa on the next one. Well, say alfalfa requires an entirely different um, soil chemistry. And if there's a lot of prep that has to be done, that doesn't really make sense. Whereas you might actually plant something similar to corn, but the after effects of whatever that other species, say it's lima beans, is going to set that land up well for corn on the third rotation. So we're actually using the byproduct of whatever it is you're growing on that particular pot of land and the waste product that's left over to help prepare the soil for the next planting. So <clears throat> if you clear cut um, a stand of jack pine or something and you know that you wanna grow jack pine there next time, well, there may be a lot of waste products from the jack pine that could be very conducive to continue to grow more jack pine or it might be not good for jack pine. So. Ultimately, the post-harvage management plan depends upon what comes next. But that's in a clear-cutting example. When we're talking about um, shelter wood or seed tree or single selection or something like that, the post-harvage management plan there becomes much more micro-scale. Um, first of all, if you are embracing um, a, a silvicultural plan that doesn't allow a lot of sunlight in there, then you don't have to worry so much about that um, invasive plant. Um, you know, grabbing all that sunlight and growing up and covering the canopy floor. But most forest concessions that are managed for lumber are heavily, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I guess managed, <laughs> for lack of a better term, they manage that undergrowth because the undergrowth is certainly grabbing nutrients and things that could be going to feed the tree. The undergrowth can, can, can be very harmful to some species. Other species may like that undergrowth. So managing the undergrowth, managing the, the, the what grows to the light that hits the forest floor is very much a part of that particular silvicultural system. So to say, are there specific post-harvest management plan, maintenance plans? Uh, yeah, I wouldn't say there's anything specific. I would say it's absolutely part of the overall plan. In other words, once you harvest, you're not done. You're only halfway through that silvicultural system. And what comes next depends entirely upon what the future of that particular stand of trees or that clear cut or whatever it is, what species and other, in other words, that you're trying to plant. So good stuff, Ben. I really appreciate um, hearing from someone who is probably much better informed on the science than I am. Then I had a, a question that a relatively uh, simple one to address from Kurt. He says, um, 
I was confused when you mentioned applewood being used in a cherry veneer plywood. He's referring to a plywood episode I did. I did not know that applewood is used for any purpose besides smoking or fruit. Um, how would they get logs since orchards don't let trees grow tall? I'm growing an orchard for fruit and cider, and I also have a sawmill, and I have a classical music background. <laughs> Hence, I'm interested in your podcast. There's another nice Venn diagram there. Um, so, Kurt, more than likely, not knowing exactly what you're referring to, I was probably talking about apple ply, which is not apple with the species in there. It's a brand name. Um, apple ply is an actual plywood brand name, which actually was bought by States Industries. So I don't know that we may, we, that brand name might be going away or being sunset in favor of the States. Um, but they're not, they're not using apple wood, the species for those interior plies. It will vary dependent upon the product, but no, uh, apple would be, would be terrible for it. Um, because the primary use of these apple trees is apples and orchards grow relatively short. They're also encouraged branching because branching produces more fruit. Well, branches produce nuts, which is terrible for veneer for um, plywood. Um, yeah, fruit trees in general would make pretty terrible plywood um, just because of their um, somewhat gnarly grain, their short stature, um, etc. So no, when I'm talking about apple ply, that is a brand name, not the actual species. So let's move on to the the topic, if you will. And again, this is um, from um, a listener. This is from Justin. And he says, I have the opportunity to get a large amount of Chinese mahogany, tuna sinensis. Any info about this species in terms of workability and characteristics? I'm also getting dried ash and pecan. All three of these will be new experiences to me. How do these compare to kiln-dried red oak, walnut, soft maple, or cherry, which is what I've used up until now. So, Dustin, um, I could be snarky and say, go back and listen to my episode about uh, understanding the working properties of wood, because <laughs> that'll tell you. But I'm not going to do that. I'm going to actually walk through this today, and we're going we're gonna to talk about this. This is a, kind of one of my, I don't know, core calls to action, if you will, because I get questions like this a lot. You know, how does this work? And the answers are there for us. The important part is, if you've not worked any wood at all, you can be at a bit of a disadvantage. But most of the time, you've had some experience with something. You know, you've worked with pine, or you've worked with oak, or something like that. So you know how that works. So that's the important part. You start there. What are the species that I do know? And take a look at their technical properties. Find out what is the Janka hardness rating? What is their density? What is their shearing strength, their bending strength, their um, stiffness rating? All of those things. Um, and kind of write down those numbers. And then another column, write down the species you want to know more about. So in this instance, we're talking about Chinese mahogany, which is actually, I think, more of a pharmacological tree than anything else. It's got a, a great deal of extractives um, that are used in the, um, in the pharmacy industry. So yeah, more than anything, that's the primary bit of that species. Certainly when it gets felled and cut up for wood, um, I think in many instances that's a secondary purpose, if not a tertiary purpose. It's not a species that gets heavily exported. Um, it's a species that generally stays in country and is used for construction and cabinet making and things like that. But uh, yeah, we don't see it a whole lot. Um, I should back up and say that it is, um, it's an Asian species. Uh, it's a pretty big tree. Um, 
I would say, well, I'm just looking at the technical specs. Uh, Medium-sized tree, about 40 meters tall, um, long branchless bowl, up to 20 meters and 100 centimeters in diameter. So in a lot of ways, you can find some similarities between that and some of the other um, jungle woods you would find in Asia. Uh, let's see. Geographic distribution is pretty much all across Asia, Indonesia, China. Yeah. Pretty much everywhere in China. Um, it is a, a reddish wood, which is probably why people call it mahogany. I've talked about this before. People tend to stick mahogany on the anything because it makes it seem luxurious. It makes it more desirable. It does happen to roll up under the Melissae family, which is where genuine mahogany comes from. So anytime something is in that family, people say, oh, it's in the same family as mahogany. So therefore, we can call it mahogany. Um, I am actually finding more instances of Tuna sinensis being referred to as Chinese cedar than Chinese mahogany, but it's not unheard of to, to obviously have it heard uh, called Chinese mahogany. Uh, I'm also seeing some people are lumping into the Tuna genus and some are taking a separate species in the Cedrella genus, which is probably more where the Chinese cedar comes from because cedars tend to come from that Cedrella um, genus. Not all of them, not all of them, but many of them. Uh, the true cedars, if you will, come from the Cedrella genus. So there is a Cedrella sinensis and a Tuna sinensis. They're both considered variants um, and both kind of roll up under this um, species that actually in Indonesia goes by the trade name of Surian, S-U-R-I-A-N. Um, but we're going to keep calling it Chinese mahogany because that's what it was called when it was brought to me. So, um, if we want to try to understand how it works with some of the other woods that Justin has worked with, it's important to get kind of really broad first. You know, it is a hardwood. So we really don't want to, if like if you have a bunch of experience working with pine or oak, I would want to compare it with oak over pine because you're going to find more similarities there. If you if you're trying to figure out if you're comparing the technical working properties of pine and the working properties of Chinese mahogany, you can still come to some conclusions, but it's better to do a closer to apples to apples comparison than apples to oranges. And Chinese mahogany to say northeastern white pine, I would consider to be apples to oranges, whereas Chinese mahogany to red oak is a little bit more apples to apples. Now let's get a little bit more specific. What is the structure of Chinese mahogany? And Chinese mahogany is a semi-ring porous wood. In some instances, you might actually make a case for it being ring porous. Um, so I, I've got several pictures of, of ingrain. In fact, I'll probably use one of these as the uh, featured image for this, uh, this episode. So looking at that, uh, I can see why some would call it ring porous because there are some pretty large pores but the pore size varies. You actually can get some large ones, something like you would see in red oak, but also much, much smaller pores like I would see in maple or even mahogany. Um, so there's not, unlike red oak, where you have pretty much the same size pore and they're very, very clearly oriented at rings, this is a little bit more varied, which is why I think semi-ring porous is a slightly better term for this. So let's try to compare apples to apples. Um, if it's semi-ring porous, of the species that Justin said he had experience with, again, red oak, walnut, soft maple, and cherry, are any of those semi-ring porous? Well, yes, walnut is semi-ring porous. So that right there can, can 
that's much more of an apples to apples comparison. Second thing would be to look at red oak versus Chinese uh, mahogany, because again, um, it can be ring porous and red oak is most definitely ring porous. So what I'm gonna do is pull up the wood database while I'm talking here. Now, the one thing I will tell you is Chinese mahogany is not in the wood database. I did several searches for it um, using different trade names and things. Um, and I did not find it. Although, you know what? While I'm thinking about this, I didn't actually type in Syrian. Um, I'm pretty sure, yeah, it's not there. So I did uh, some Googling and I actually found my information on um, uh, on tropicaltimber.info, which is a really good site for some of those tertiary species that you find, especially in Asia. Um, it's not you know, as comprehensive as the wood database, but you can find some really odd guys in there. So anyway, I'm going to pull up uh, American Black Walnut, and I've got, in another window here, I've got um, Tropical Timber's uh, version of Chinese mahogany. So now I wanna actually start looking at the mechanical properties here. And uh, first things first, the bending strength of Chinese mahogany. Um, that's the other thing you have to make sure you're looking at similar units here. Uh, okay. And bending strength. Forgive me. I'm doing conversions in my head here. Okay. So uh, we are looking at about 11,000. I'm just going to round down and say 11,000 foot-pounds per square inch for the Chinese mahogany. Black walnut is 14,000, closer to 15,000. So relatively similar, but obviously uh, the Chinese mahogany is not going to have quite the same um, bending strength there. The stiffness is, again, converting in my head, so modulus of rupture, all right, walnut is 1.7 million foot-pounds, and Chinese mahogany is about 1.5 million foot-pounds. So again, they're close enough, um, but you're going to find that walnut is going to be a little bit stiffer. So it's going to hold up better as you're spanning a gap. Say you're making a shelf, walnut's going to sag less than you would find um, for this Chinese mahogany. Um, I've got some compression numbers in here, max compression, things like that, that get kind of esoteric. I don't know that we really need all that. Um, the Janko hardness of walnut, um, I just happen to know, <laughs> is anywhere from about 960 to 1,000. Um, some folks have actually tested it around 850. Um, so we're just gonna say 850 to about 1,000. Now the Chinese mahogany, is uh, 400. So there's a huge difference there. Um, now we're talking similar hardness to something like cedar, which uh, that's that's interesting. And it would, would also account for some of the weaker bending numbers and stiffness numbers. Um, that Janka number is kind of a, a big difference. So I would imagine density is going to be quite a bit lower. Um, so black walnut, has a density 0.61 and tunis sinensis 0.52. Yeah, 
That makes sense. So here again, if you look at the ingrain of walnut, you're going to see a similar distribution of pores that you would see in Chinese mahogany. The big difference is walnut, the pore sizes are pretty uniform. You're not going to find a lot of, of variation. You will find some slightly larger ones right at the demarcation between early and late growth, but most of the pores are, are pretty small. The Chinese mahogany is uh, has quite large pores. Where the pores are large, they're quite large, like red oak sized pores. And then the small ones are still quite a bit larger than what you would see in walnut. So in other words, there's just more air in Chinese mahogany, which would account for that much, much lower density. And I think also accounts for the much, much lower Janka number. Um, I don't know if I have any shearing strength numbers on, on Chinese mahogany. Um, that often, that's the number I use to figure out how easy does it plane. The number itself doesn't really help a whole lot, but um, comparing that number, let's see, shearing strength, shearing strength, shearing strength. Shearing strength is sometimes called a bunch of different things. Um, no, no, I don't have any shearing strength on well, so I can't, I can't quite go that far, but I can look at the density, I can look at the pore structure, and I look at the hardness and, and see that it's going to be certainly easier to work. It would be easier to chop like a mortise in it or easier to bore than, um, than walnut. But with that really, really low hardness, um, and the somewhat lighter density, I think there's gonna be a strong chance you have to be careful of like crushing the fibers and maybe getting kind of fuzzy edges. Um, you know, you gotta use really sharp tools when you're boring and you're probably gonna get that really fuzzy edge around the end. Uh, if you do a, like a countersink hole, you might get more denting and bending um, and tearing than you would in walnut because it's substantially, uh, substantially softer. Now, just out of curiosity, if we compare that to something like red oak, well, red oak has a hardness of about 1200. So it's what? almost four times, did I say 400 or 300 hardness? 400, so it's three times harder. Red oak is three times harder than um, Chinese mahogany. But yet you can see similar pore sizes. Um, and actually, I think you'll find that there's probably more pores in the Chinese mahogany than you would find in red oak, but there's a lot of wide open red oak pores. The density is actually quite similar between red oak um, and Chinese mahogany. It's only off by about four hundredths. Um, so that's particularly interesting. That's very telling to me um, actually more about red oak. Even though the density is low, even though the pore structure is quite large, the hardness is substantially higher, three times harder, which tells you the actual meat, the stuff that's in between there is of much, much sterner stuff. And when you look at the bending strength and the stiffness, uh, in red oak, it's substantially higher than you would find in Chinese mahogany. I don't have shearing strength numbers, but the shearing strength number of red oak is quite high. The compression strength numbers in red oak are incredibly high. Um, let's just do a quick comparison because I do have compression on Chinese mahogany. Um, yeah, we're looking at, again, about three times. Compression strength is a good three times 
that of what Chinese mahogany is. Again, the numbers themselves mean very little, but you have to kind of compare them and do like a ratio analysis between multiple species. So Justin has worked with red oak. He's going to have some opinions about red oak. He can already know that Chinese mahogany is going to work a lot easier than red oak. It's not going to be nearly as hard. Um, but that could also go the other way. You could say it will work more difficult because it's quite soft. Um, personally, I think if we were to actually compare, it says Chinese mahogany, right? Let's compare it to genuine mahogany. Hardness of Chinese mahogany is still about half, maybe a little less than half of what genuine mahogany is. The pore structure of genuine mahogany is almost entirely homogenous. Um, that is a diffuse porous wood. The, the pores are scattered throughout the wood in genuine mahogany and they're quite small. So, um, well, I shouldn't say quite small. We'll call them medium width. Compared to something like maple, they're wide open. Um, but, you know, mahogany is known as kind of an open grain wood. A lot of times if you want a smooth finish, you need to do a pour fill if you're going to do a French polish on it. This Chinese mahogany is going to be the same, if not more. You're going to have to do quite a bit more pore filling because you've got quite a bit larger pores. But I do think that the density is almost spot on the same. I think you'll find that the Chinese mahogany will be um, nice to work with. It won't be as smooth and buttery as genuine mahogany because of that difference in pore structure. And because of the somewhat ring porous nature, you're going to have that little kind of hiccup. Like if you're running, let's say, a carving gouge across the surface of Chinese mahogany, when it hits that that early growth area where a lot of those big pores are stacked together in that somewhat ring porous nature, that chisel is going to stutter um, or skip would be a more appropriate thing because it's going to hit a lot of dead air and it's just not going to carve quite as easily. General mahogany carves so well because there's just no, there's no dead air, um, but it's still a relatively soft wood meaning that it carves with no little skips or interruptions, but it's soft enough that you can use hand pressure to push a gouge through it relatively easily. I do think you'll find some pleasurable working experience with this. I do think that once you integrate power tools into the mix, you may run into some situations where you're going to have some really fuzzy grain left from the power planer. Um, probably a spiral cutter will do you better in this instance. Uh, or at least shearing cut is going to do a little bit better because it it does remind me a little bit of like the fuzzy nature that comes from planing western red cedar being super super soft um, it doesn't appear to have an interlocked grain structure but i wouldn't be surprised if it is interlocked like a lot of asian species um, which immediately makes me think of something like african mahogany or the kaya genus that fuzzes through a planer you know all day long and twice on sunday because of that interlocked nature so I'm looking at a face grain sample of this. There's no ribbon striping. There is a little bit of striation on the face that makes it kind of seem like it might be interlocked. Um, but the, what I'm finding, the descriptions I'm finding don't actually say if it's an interlocked grain or not. Wait, I'm wrong, it does. Well, okay, <laughs> this is not helpful. It says the grain is straight, too interlocked, and sometimes wavy. So yeah, it's kind of somewhere in the middle. I mean, technically, genuine mahogany has an interlocked grain, but it's much less offensive than something like kaya or even sapili. So I think you're probably going to find that um, you're going to have some issues with planing it. You're going to want to have a really sharp blade. You're going to want to use a skewed um, 
pass as much as possible. With a hand plane, that's easy. With a power tool, you want a shearing cutter, something like uh, um, you know a carbide uh, carbide cutter that. I think they're all shearing now. I mean, certainly Shelix brand is known for that, but I think they pretty much all cut to somewhat of a shear cut. That will help a little bit, but certainly lighten your cuts and you won't get quite as much fuzzing there. Um, so yeah, I, just looking at those numbers, looking at really hardness, looking at density, um, certainly bending strength and stiffness mean a lot from a structural perspective, but if you're not really gonna do any bending, it doesn't really help that much. Why I like looking at bending strength and stiffness is it talks about the strength of the meat. What I was talking about with red oak, how red oak is, is same density, huge wide open pores, yet three times harder than Chinese mahogany. That stiffness, that strength of the fibers that's not dead air, that is reflected in those really high bending strength and stiffness numbers. Really the stiffness numbers, the, the modulus of elasticity numbers. When I look at Chinese mahogany and I see lower numbers there, um, that tells me that the meat, the lignin, the actual cellulose fibers that run between the dead air that's in the pores are just not as strong as something as red oak or something as walnut. But the important part, I think, of all of this is as you start making comparisons, try to get as close to species that you understand, you know, a species that you have experience working with, try to get as close to a match there. So in this case, I think porosity is kind of the trump card because that really determines how the board looks and feels when you plane it, when you chisel it, etc. Those, those little stutter steps that happen when you run across a large pore or lack of large pores. Think of something like hard maple. It's really hard to chop. It's really hard to plane because it's got tiny little pores that are evenly spaced throughout the wood and the stuff in between, the strength of those fibers is reflected in really high bending strength and really high stiffness. Um, the other thing about hard maple is the shearing strength is off the charts. So actually planing the surface, shearing along the face is really, really hard to do. And that's reflected because of the indens because of the density and because of that porosity. The porosity always tends to be a factor. And when you look at a factor and say, why is the shearing strength high? Porosity is usually a factor. Why is the density high? Porosity is a major factor in there. So I look at the porosity of the wood and try to find something that I have experience working with to compare it to. So I do think comparing this to walnut makes good sense because you will find some similarities looking at ingrain photos. And, and this doesn't require a lot of scientific understanding. Just look at the pictures. Look at a picture of walnut ingrain, look at a picture of, of Chinese mahogany ingrain, and or if you don't have a picture and you have Chinese mahogany in your hand and you have walnut in your hand, plane it and, and look at it under uh, 10 times magnification under a hand lens or something. and. When you find that similar looking ingrain, you can feel good starting to make that comparison. Because if I find, you know, uh, well, let's see, Justin also listed um, what, cherry, uh, red oak, soft maple, and cherry and walnut. Those are the species he has experience with. So if I look at cherry, well, cherry is diffuse porous. Cherry um, has a very different porous and internal structure than the Chinese mahogany. So to say cherry has a hardness of 850, um, okay, yeah, it's it's about twice the hardness of the Chinese mahogany. But those bending strength numbers, those density numbers, they don't really make as clear a comparison. The density of cherry is going to be higher, but that makes sense because there's tiny little pores and much fewer of them. 
Um, but if I look at a species that has the same approximate size of pores and kind of distribution of pores, and I see a massive difference in density, that's interesting. That immediately, then I can't point to porosity. I can't say, well, that's because of the pore size. I have to look for something else. And that's when the bending strength and stiffness numbers really come into play. I hope I'm not talking in circles here, but I'm, I'm trying to give you like a, a decision tree, if you will. Start with porosity, try to find equal comparison, and then you can kind of eliminate that from consideration as you look at the differences. Why is it so much softer? Why is it three times less, three times softer than red oak? You know, why is it half as soft as, as walnut? And uh, you'll get, you you will actually be really surprised at how you can get a strong understanding of how, in this case, Chinese mahogany works without ever putting, you know, blade to the wood. Um, Justin went on to say he's also getting some ash and pecan. Um, so what I'd be curious is, Justin, based on what I just walked through, um, could you do the same thing looking at the species you like? red oak, walnut, soft maple, and cherry, could you look at ash and pecan and do the same comparison? I'll get you started and say ash is a ring porous wood, pretty large pores. It's going to look a lot like red oak. When you look at the ingrain, it's going to look very much like red oak. Now the red oak pore is going to be a little bit larger, but just look at the face of ash and the face of red oak. If you were colorblind, they almost would be the same wood. Um, you know, ash is obviously very blonde. Red oak is kind of brown with a hint of a pinkish hue to it. But if you, you know, had no concept of color whatsoever, you might think it was the same species. In fact, if you bleach red oak, it looks a lot like ash. So I would compare those two species. Now, pecan, you know, pecan, people say pecan hickory. First important thing is to understand, is it actually pecan or is it a uh, pecan hickory. There's several different species that may show up there, and you can say there are true hickories and pecan hickories. Um, if it is pecan, that's um, um, the Caria genus. Um, I can't remember the species. Well, you know what? I have wood database up. Uh, pecan, pecan. It is Caria illinoisensis. <laughs> illinoisensis. Illinoisensis. I guess it's from Illinois. Um, yeah, that's true pecan, but you'll find some very striking similarities with like nutmeg hickory. Um, uh, what's the other one? Bitter nut hickory. Um, but it's important to, to understand exactly what species you have because uh, pecan, the Illinoisensis species, is hard. Its Janka hardness is 1820, which that's that's crazy nuts. I mean, that's harder than than like shag bark and shell bark hickory, what people think of as really difficult to work hickory. But the porosity of pecan is not like hickory. Um, hickory is very ring porous, big, uh, large open pores. I suppose you could say pecan is ring porous, but it's similar actually to what we're talking about with Chinese mahogany, where it's ring porous to semi-ring porous. And if, and if you look at the ingrain, of pecan and look at the end grain of hickory, you're going to see there's a big difference. Um, not nearly as neatly ordered rows of large pores. You can definitely make out rings in pecan, but you also find a lot of smaller pores that are kind of distributed evenly, almost diffuse porous like throughout the wood. 
um, which I think accounts for that much, much harder number. So if you're comparing that to some of the species you have experience with, again, it's semi-ring porous, you might compare it to walnut. Um, but honestly, I think I might compare it more. Hmm. See, now soft maple, I could say soft maple because it's, it's soft maple is very diffuse with very small pores, but soft maple is also quite soft. Um, honestly, compared to hard maple, it's about half the hardness. I think you're better off comparing this with something like cherry or possibly walnut. Um, so what I would recommend, Justin, is go through the same exercise I just went through. Compare your pecan, um, pecan, compare, pecan, I'm getting pecan and compare mixed up. Compare the pecan numbers with the walnut numbers and take a look at that and see how does the hardness compare? What is the bending strength and the stiffness look like? In other words, what is the, the stiffness of the cellulose fibers, the strength of the cellulose fibers? What's the density like in comparison between those two species? And then you know what, while you're at it, compare pecan to cherry. Um, and, and you'll probably be able to get a good understanding of how it's going to work in comparison to those two species. Uh, the ash side of things, absolutely, compared to red oak. Now, the other thing I will say, if your red oak experience is just Home Depot red oak, that's going to be a negative experience as compared to like lumber yard rough sawn red oak. Um, Home Depot red oak tends to be rushed through the drying process a lot more. It's much, 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 much more brittle than something you would get from a regular lumber yard. So if you've had a bad red oak experience from a big box store, try buying red oak from a lumber yard or better yet, buy it green and use it air dried and it's a transformative experience. So I hope that was helpful. This is certainly not a new topic. It's something that I've discussed on the show before. I devoted a whole episode to it. But I think taking it out of abstract and putting it into the specific case, and especially something like Chinese mahogany that I've never never heard of this stuff before, um, I think is really interesting. And what this is, what's so cool about this is you can kind of unlock the world of wood. You know, there's some cool woods down in Australia. They're usually all evil, but... You know, you may never get um, the ability to go pick some up, but there's a lot of export of Australian wood that we in the U.S. can get our hands on some of that stuff. We can get Jara in a lot of exotic dealers. We can get Australian cedar. Um, and you could actually take a look at the working properties and have a good understanding of how it's going to work before you go and drop a bunch of money on it at the local lumberyard. You know, you, you may have chosen Jara because you like how it looks, but you have no idea how it works. You buy a bunch of it, you get home and you go, man, this is like chiseling granite. Um, you probably could have answered that question just by looking at the technical properties and comparing it to wood that you have experience with. This is liberating. This allows us to look at any wood species that we know what it is, do a little bit of digging and have a good understanding of what you're getting into before you plop down the cash on however many board feet you need for your project. So Justin, I hope that helps. I left you a little bit of homework. Feel free to write back and let me know um, what you think, what your conclusions are on the pecan and the ash. And mostly, enjoy it. Great species to work with, a lot of cool contrast. And I'm really curious to see how you're working, um, how it goes working with the Chinese mahogany. If some of my conclusions um, are kind of proven by the actual working of it um, in your own shop and uh, let us know how it goes that does it for me folks there's another episode in the bag thanks so much for listening again send in your questions go to lumberupdate.com send your questions there or email me at lumberupdate 
at gmail.com. In the meantime, go buy some wood, but identify its working properties first.